0: This episode was recorded on Banarong Boonwurrung Country, the traditional custodians of the land, waterways and sky, from Werribee River to Wilson's Prom in Victoria. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. Before the Great Pyramids of Egypt had even been built, the Banarong Boonwurrung people were here. They have been living on this country for tens of thousands of years. Welcome to Weekend Birda. I'm your host Kirsty Costa. This episode is about an Aussie penguin. Forget about icebergs and blizzards. The smallest of the world's 17 penguins, the little penguin, is more into sand dunes and beach waves. Many thanks to Anita, Joe, Rachel, Sarah and Todd for requesting this pint-sized bird as today's topic. Meet our little penguin expert and fellow bird nerd, Paula Wasiak. I first got interested in birds just by, through my interest with wildlife, really.
1: I asked my mum recently, actually, to get the earliest photo she could find of me with some sort of wildlife, and she found this great photo of me when I was three years old with a wild deer, <laughs> and I'm there patting it. <laughs> and I said, my mum, do you think that was very safe? And she's like, oh, you knew what you were doing at three. <laughs> had this connection to wildlife my entire life. My mum was also a wildlife carer as well. So I grew up with lots of animals around growing up. And my first job actually ended up being in a pet shop that specialised in birds. And I think that's when I really started to fall in love with birds and seeing the different behaviours and just
0: amazed at how different they are. This year, Paula was named as a superstar of STEM. This program smashes society's gender assumptions about scientists and increases the public visibility of women and non-binary people in STEM. Paula's superstar journey began with a science degree, majoring in zoology and freshwater marine biology. It was during her honours year that she was introduced to the weird and wonderful world of little penguins.
1: I did a science degree, I majored in zoology So I spent a year researching their reproductive physiology, specifically their calcium ingestion and how that impacts their egg development. I did do a bit of time volunteering with the St. Kilda penguins as well. Quite a unique colony. They are relatively new. They're in the city of Melbourne, so in amongst the bright lights in the bay there of Melbourne. And they started colonising the St. Kilda breakwater that was built for the Olympics when Melbourne held the Olympics back in the 50s. They were an offshoot colony from Phillip Island that then started colonising St Kilda and there's now a few thousand of them there. They're an amazing colony. There's an amazing volunteer group that um, monitors them and some students as well. It's a great opportunity to volunteer hands-on with penguins in the city of Melbourne. It's amazing. So pretty much yeah, for 16 years now, one way or another, I have been working closely with penguins.
0: Little penguins live along the southern edge of mainland Australia as well as Tasmania, New Zealand and the Chatham Islands. Phillip Island, known by traditional owners as Malau, is famous for its little penguins and is only 90 minutes' drive from Melbourne. Paula has worked on this unique island since 2009 with Phillip Island Nature Parks, a conservation organisation that offers ecotourism experiences and invests its revenue in research, environment and education programs. Paula coordinates and conducts field data collection for her organisation – and supports projects that aim to future-proof the survival of the little penguin.
1: So little penguins you'll find around the southern parts of Australia, from about Perth, islands of Perth, all the way around to past Newcastle, up around there. And then you'll also find them all around New Zealand. And they will colonise areas anywhere where they can either dig a burrow or have a crevice to have a nest, like um, the St Kilda breakwater there, or there's, it's full of rocks, and they now nest in the crevices of those rocks. So anywhere they can have a burrow, they will move into. They are particularly found on offshore islands, and that is due to the pressure that that mainland has, particularly foxes. Uh, we know that one fox can kill up to 30 penguins of an evening. So unfortunately, on the mainland, they do struggle a little bit. Um, but in offshore islands, you can have them in the thousands. It's amazing.
0: When people imagine a penguin they tend to picture a tall black and white bird living in Antarctica. And depending on what era they grew up in, it might also be wearing a bow tie or tap dancing. Paula says that the little penguin, which is also known as the fairy penguin, looks quite different.
1: So I like a lot of penguins, little penguins are blue and white. It's actually quite surprising. A lot of people, when they first come out with me into the field, for example, when they first see a little penguin in the daylight, a lot of the time their first comment is, oh my gosh, they're so bright blue and that's what makes them different from a lot of the other penguin species. They're not black and white, they're blue and white, and they're very small. They're only about 30 centimetres tall. Quite often I see um, people, you know, posting up on social media photos of birds that they see that are black and white from a distance, and they're like, oh, are these penguins. Quite often they're pied cormorants or um, some other species of bird because people don't realise, no, they're actually blue and white. The generally held belief of why they have that counter shading of the white on their on their bellies and the blue on their back, or other penguin species that have the black on the back, is to help them camouflage in that marine environment, so that predators from above won't see them. Or camouflage with the water, and predators from below will struggle to see them as well. Although I have heard conflicting ideas as to why they have that counter shading, but the most popular belief is for
0: the um, protection of, of themselves in case predator sees them. Little penguins are a marine species because they spend 80% of their lives in water. Their bodies have incredible adaptations that enable them to survive in their environment. We see them up on land, but they are completely reliant on the water for all of their food. And
1: because of that, they're adapted to live in this marine space. They never feel the water on their skin unless there's something wrong with them. They have this really dense number of feathers on their bodies. And in fact, if you were to pick up a penguin out of the water, first of all, you'd have to be pretty skillful because they're so fast in the water. But if you were to pick one up and lift up that top layer of feathers, you'd see underneath that that down is completely dry and fluffy. And that's because of their 100% waterproofing beneath those feathers they also have the layer of air between the body and the feathers that they use for insulation and buoyancy insulation is really important being in cold water they are a temperate species and when they forage they forage in quite cool water so it does help keep them warm But it is a point to consider that with increasing terrestrial temperatures, this might be a problem in the future when we have an increase in, say, heat wave events. They are burrowing species, so underground they are a little bit cooler, of course. But we have seen, for example, heat stress events where we have a large number of adults that succumb to the heat. That waterproofing and that insulation might be a bit of a hindrance in an increasing temperature environment, unfortunately, because they are a swimming bird, not a flying bird. They have the really dense bones as well. Flying birds often have that, you know, honeycomb bones, but penguins have very light bones. And their flippers are amazing. They can swim at speeds of up to about 12 kilometres per hour, which is huge. We're talking about a 30 centimetre bird, and they can outswim an Olympic swimmer. Usually, when they're cruising, it's more two to four kilometres per hour, but when they're gunning it, it's 12 kilometres per hour. And they have these flippers that when they're going max speed can beat at about five times per second. It just blows my mind. And if anyone has ever handled a penguin, you would <laughs> probably have also experienced the flipper slapping that they, they do in defense. And you can attest to just how fast and hard they can slap those flippers. But they're, of course, so that they can swim super fast under the water. So they can dive up to, we've recorded penguins diving up to about 72 meters deep, which is amazing. Again, for really these small species. They can stay under the water for just under about two minutes that we've recorded. Because they are a bird, they absolutely do need to come up for air. And it is interesting. I do get some questions sometimes for people asking, so what type of animal is a penguin? And that's fair enough. There's a creature that swims under the water and, and doesn't fly. Definitely a bird, definitely requires coming up for air. But we do know that they can actually spend about a month out at sea, probably even longer. They sleep on the surface of the water whenever they're not foraging. They forage during the day and they can sleep for short periods of time on, on the surface of that water, which is just really impressive when you have something that's you know smaller than a bowling pin The depths they go and how fast they can swim and how
0: adapted they are to that marine environment. Little penguins also have some interesting behavioural adaptations. For example, they are nocturnal when they are on land at night and they are diurnal when they're in the water in the daytime. That's because they're visual
1: predators. So they need to be able to see their predators to dive down and catch them. Catch their fish and crustaceans and sea jellies and squid and whatever else they, they come across. Because they're so small, they need to be nocturnal on land. There are several predators, several native predators, seagulls for example, birds of prey that are out during the day that they want to avoid. After a day of fishing, they'll raft up with what we call rafting up, where they aggregate in groups just off the beach. And then at sunset, they will come up in groups, in large groups quite often, up to the beach into their burrows that they create in the dunes. And that's again for protection from predators. When you're in a group, it's much more safer, of course. You hope you're not the last one there. You hope someone else will get picked off before you do. And again, at at sunset to avoid those um, daytime predators. They are a burrowing species, and that is for temperature control and also to avoid predators. And it's really fascinating that they're highly uh, philopatric, so they will come back to the same colony that they've actually fledged from quite often. We do do get a small percentage that break off and go elsewhere, uh, which is what we've seen in, for example, St Kilda, where a small percentage of penguins fledge and then started colonizing a new area. We do see that. But for the most part, they came, come back to the same colony that they fledged from. And then once they're an adult, they'll come back quite often to the exact same burrow or one within about two meters from a burrow that they have bred in. And year after year, they'll come back to that same area, which I find fascinating. And we don't entirely know how they navigate. We believe they use visual cues. They certainly use a lot of sound. So penguins don't recognize each other by sight, which is interesting because a lot of people ask me, can you recognize individual penguins? I'm like, the penguins can't even recognize individual penguins by sight. (laughs) They use vocalization. They can't recognize their chicks by sight. They use vocalization for all that. And it's probably a combination of uh, tools that they use to try to find their way back. But it's incredibly fascinating that they can come back to the same location year after year to breed or to molt. They do go through this amazing molt period as well with their breeding. They start breeding when they're about two to three years of age. But they don't have to breed every year. If conditions aren't great or they want a, a, a break, they don't breed. But every single adult penguin must molt every single year. That's a non-negotiable. And they go through what we call a catastrophic molt. They come up on land and they lose all of their feathers in the one constrained period of time. And that's because they are so reliant on the water. If they lose a small amount of feathers at a time like a lot of other birds do, then that will compromise their waterproofing. And they can't have that. So they come up on land, little penguins, it takes about up to about three weeks from start to finish for them to complete that molt they starve basically they don't eat on land at all so beforehand they fatten themselves up they go out to sea fatten them up they can get up to double their normal body size their normal weight before they come back and go through this three week period of this intense molt and it's it's one of my favorite parts of the year because they look so bedraggled and so grumpy and i guess that's fair enough it's a pretty
0: intense period of time imagine having to molt every feather on your body each that image of a grumpy molting penguin will stay with me for a while Research into the breeding habits of little penguins has put Paula and her team on the scientific map.
1: Little penguins are what we call socially monogamous, but sexually promiscuous. And this might break some hearts because a lot of people use penguins as an example of monogamy. In fact, I had an interesting experience with one of my doctors once. She was telling me that she calls her husband her little penguin because they're so faithful. And me being the scientist that I am, I, I didn't even think about it. I went, well, did you know that, yes, they can certainly breed with the same partner for several years, but they actually have an 18 to about a 50% divorce rate. It depends on how well the breeding goes. If they fail raising chicks, then they're more likely to divorce. But even if they raise chicks with the same partner year after year, they can have five different relations a night with different penguins. She just quietly looked down and said, oh, I might think of a different nickname then. <laughs> but that is the reality, you know, they are, not, they are not us, they are not humans. They have their unique breeding strategies and they will certainly have chicks with the same partner for consecutive years quite often, but that does not mean they don't have extra partners on the side.
0: On land at night, little penguins can be really noisy, particularly before and during breeding season. That recording was by Rob Van Bemelen. Little penguins use this funny array of noises to chat with each other and to identify each other. They also call intermittently at sea, and their yaps sound a bit like a small dog. Paula has heard the call of the little penguin many times before, as one of her favourite things to do is to collect data at night.
1: In one particular aspect of their breeding season, the adults only come back in the evening. It's when they have older chicks. It's what we call the post-guard period of time where those chicks are now older and both the parents can go out to fish and come back only in the evenings. But sometimes I need to, for example, collect blood samples from the adults. And so we need to go out at nighttime. And it is just so amazing to be out in the penguin colony at night. The Summerlands Peninsula, where the penguins are that I work with, it's closed off to the public completely from dusk, and that is to protect the penguins. It's often just me and, and a colleague out in the field with no one else for a couple of kilometers except for these penguins and the short-tail shearwaters are flying in as well. And it's just such an amazing experience to be surrounded by these birds. It's, it's, that's when I pinch myself and realize how lucky I am to have this job. Another experience that really uh, stands out in my mind was when I was doing my honours with the penguins. Again, it was with this colony at Sumlin's Peninsula. What we know as the Penguin Parade, for those listening at home, it's where we have an eco-tourism venture where people can come and watch penguins. The penguins arrive of an evening just for an hour and then everything shuts down for the protection of the penguins. My job was to go down to the penguin parade in the morning before the penguins left to observe what we call shell-gritting behaviour where the females come down and eat bits of shell for calcium. And as I was walking down to the beach, no one really told me much about the short-tail shearwaters that we have also in very large numbers on Phillip Island. We have about, I think, 1.4 million shearwaters on the island and quite a nice population there near the penguin parade. And I don't know if you've ever heard a short-tailed shearwater and what sound it makes, but it's horrifying. (laughs) I didn't know that as a 21-year-old walking down to the beach. I think it was four in the morning and I heard these calls. It was probably one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. And I have never since gone back to the parade in the early morning, even though I know it's just short-tailed shearwaters. (laughs) But they have a very unique call that uh, sounds like the devil. That
0: recording was by Nick Talbot. Phillip Island is home to over 1 million short-tailed shearwaters. This bird has completely dark feathers and a rounded tail. You are most likely to find it along the south and southeast coasts of Australia, often hanging out in enormous numbers. Each year, this bird flies over 16,000 kilometres from Alaska to spend summer in Australia and raise its chicks. A very cool species that deserves its own weekend bird episode. Okay, back to little penguins. Paula says that her and her team are constantly finding new ways to use technology to reduce the impact that their research might be having on the daily lives of the Phillip Island penguins. So one thing I am actually
1: very passionate about is ethics in wildlife research. I am our Ethics Committee Secretary and it's important that when we do study wildlife and we are up and close and personal that we always consider their welfare at all times. And we do in fact use a lot of novel technology so we can reduce the amount of handling we might have to do. So amazing um, way bridge systems that we have or essentially what we call automated penguin monitoring systems which is a system that we can place on a penguin pathway that penguins use to exit and enter the colony and we get the information of when they leave uh, and the weights that they are before they leave as they return so we can understand how long foraging trips are and how successful they are. So we use a lot of remote ways to try to understand what's happening with the penguins but of course sometimes we do absolutely have to handle them. Studying them and working with them it's amazing how they are small but mighty they are these 30 centimeter balls of muscles. They're very, very tough. A lot of people get very surprised when I show them the scars on my hands of uh, the penguin bites. To them, we are a big predator and they will defend themselves very vigorously. So again, a note to those at home, don't ever try to handle a penguin because you will get scars and it's not nice for the penguin as well. And certainly never dull studying the penguins, the conditions that they live in are are changing rapidly. And what we see in the colony is also changing rapidly as well. So it's very interesting to study them and the amount of information we get from them is is huge and
0: fascinating. When Paula thinks about the future of the little penguin, she feels optimistic because of the love that the community has for this special bird. When there
1: are some sort of custodians for a colony, so whether it be a community group or an organisation, we know that those little penguin colonies fare much better than ones that are kind of left alone. And that is because these custodians as as such, they will remove the weeds from the habitat. They will uh, remove introduced predators, for example, and they tend to thrive. So here on Phillip Island, I work for Phillip Island Nature Parks, and I'm very proud to work for this organization. We have gone from a penguin colony of about 12,000 individuals that was set to go extinct before the year 2000. And we are now the world's largest little penguin colony of at least 40,000 breeding adults. And that is an amazing thing to achieve, especially in this day and age uh, when we do hear a lot of stories of things not thriving, whereas here the little penguins certainly are. And that's not by chance, that's not by fluke, uh, that is due to the conservation efforts that we've put in. We have removed foxes from the island, we are fox free, which is amazing. And because of that, we see not only penguins thriving, but a lot of our other, particularly ground nesting birds thriving, Anyone ever comes to the island, people always remark on the Cape Baron geese that we have around. It's one of the world's rarest goose, and yet you would never guess <laughs> on Phillip Island, we have about 3,000 of them, a very healthy population. And that's due to the conservation efforts that were put in for the little penguins, but now everything else is thriving as well. Another big thing that we did was, through the support of the state government, was actually remove an entire housing estate one single species just for a little penguin. So When we had this projection that we wouldn't have little penguins left on the island by the year 2000, one of the reasons again was because there was a housing estate built upon the penguin habitat up on the Summerlands Peninsula. So The state government put in this buyback scheme where essentially the, the residents in that housing estate could only sell their houses back to the government. And they couldn't do any sort of significant renovations. And then once those whole houses were bought by the government, we then came in as the land managers and removed their houses and created optimum penguin habitat in those areas. And again, this increase in penguin habitat has meant that the numbers are thriving now. We've also you know, stopped cars from driving the roads at night because they are a nocturnal species on land and they camouflage really well all the roads. We have no cars driving around there. And just to think that was for a single species is just mind-blowing. I don't think there is any other example anywhere in the world of something like that occurring. And just the results because of that have been phenomenal. And a lot of this work that we continue to do, a lot of the research that we do now and our conservation work is actually thanks to the public. We do have this eco-tourism venture where people come to see the penguins. We also have other tourist places as well. We have the Nobby Centre and a koala centre and a, a heritage farm, Churchill Island. And all the funds raised through uh, these different centres actually comes back to help fund the work that we do, help fund our conservation work that we do. And so thank you very much if you've come to see the penguins, uh, you help us do what we do. And if you haven't, please come. There's also an amazing foundation called the Penguin Foundation, which helps the work that we do on Phillip Island for not just penguins, but for the conservation on Phillip Island as well. And you can adopt a penguin and do all sorts of marvellous things like that as well. And it's very much thanks to the public that we can continue this conservation work. Because around the world, most penguin species are actually declining in numbers, but we are very, very lucky that the little penguin is stable and here on Phillip Island is now the largest colony in the world.
0: You might also have seen a recent news story that featured Paula talking about how her team have planted more than 15,000 plants to future proof the little penguin habitat. These plants are resistant to fire and the planting aims to reduce the intensity and the speed of local bushfires. Paula is not just a little penguin scientist. She's a birder like you and I. Here is what she loves about this shared pastime. What do I
1: love most about birdwatching? I think first of all, you need to know that I'm a terrible birdwatcher. (laughs) I am not the type of person who will go out in a group and have a list of birds that I try to tick off. That's not what birdwatching is to me. For me, it's a way to relax. It's very rare that I actually find the time where I can go out and observe birds and when I do it's I can feel it in my body just everything relax so I don't want to be looking for certain species I just want to see what's there and observe the behavior and that's what I spend a lot of my time doing so I will be just as excited about seeing gray fantails building the nests in my garden as I will be seeing you know an amazing bird species just quickly fly past. There's just such a joy in watching birds and identifying what they're doing and, you know, when you find that nest that's hidden up in a tree and go, oh my God, get your nose out and having a look. It's so incredibly special. Uh, at the moment, I have a lot of birds bringing their fledglings into my yard and just that is a joy, you know, from seeing the gulls carrying on in the front yard to the magpies in the backyard. So that's what birding is to me, and that's what I love most about it, just having the space to breathe and relax and to see what's going on uh, and just seeing you know, things thriving and having a backyard that's full of birds is always very, very special, and it's not very exciting, I know. People go on these amazing bird trips, but to me, that's pretty special.
0: I can totally relate to that. I don't know about you, but I now feel very knowledgeable about the little penguin. Thanks, Paula. I've put some links in the show notes if you would like to connect with Paula and Phillip Island Nature Parks on social media, or via the web. Friends, I just wanted to say again how grateful I am that we are here together. It's such a joy sharing the ins and outs of birdwatching with you. A special thank you to listener Louise, who recommended Weekend Birder on the Bang On podcast. It was so amazing to hear. And a special thank you to everyone who has rated the show, written a review, or said hello via email or social media. I can't believe that there are thousands of you out there. Truly mind-blowing. Anyway, I hope that there are lots of great birding adventures ahead for you and I can't wait to speak to you again soon.